Hi, my name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome at the conversation. Hey, everybody. My name is Leo WT. I'm guessing you know that at this point. Um, but I, we are here for this week's episode, podcast, whatever, live video. It goes out all the place, uh, all the places. So, you know, it's all of the things. But we're here for this week's episode of Conversations. And I have my lovely friend, Pam Witter. Say Witter or Witter Say or just Say? Just Say. Just Say. All right. Pam Say. I swear that's her name. It is the government name and everything. So, my friend Pam, I have been blessed to meet her through my partner, who is also a fantastic human, whose name is Elle. She kind of introduced me to Pam, and we've had some just really cool interactions. We happen to run uh, into each other at Pride quite frequently, and and that gives me a lot of hope in someone's character right there if I'm running into <laughs> at Pride events. So, But Pam has been, from what I can see, a fearless champion of the marginalized, a person who seeks to better their understanding, and a person who actively engages different perspectives and narratives than her own. So I'm really excited to have Pam on tonight. We are going to be talking about something that Pam and I, we kind of discussed in a comment thread and I was like, ha, I locked you in. Now you got to come on the, uh, now you got to come on conversations, (laughs) but I'm going to let Pam give a brief intro to herself and then we'll dive into the topic. Hey, Leo. Thanks for having me on here. I'm really excited to do this. I've had such a nice time following you and just listening to all the conversations. It's stretched me and I've learned a lot. It's made me think about things differently. So I'm really appreciating the venue and what you're accomplishing that way. So I grew up in Olean and I'm out in the Buffalo area now. I work at a university as a vice president and working on a doctorate. But I think more important to that is, you know, I grew up far below the poverty line, faced a lot of issues and challenges in my life. And I got into college through an opportunity program called HEOP. Oh, I know um, that program. It's so good. It's so yeah. good. I just love it. But essentially what HEOP is, is it says it was a government program that colleges had to apply for and then commit certain resources to. And ultimately, the students that were selected for it had to not qualify for regular admissions. So they were just below the level to be able to get into college. And then also they had to come from a poor or economically disadvantaged background. And the majority of the students in the program are students from, you know, the non-dominant culture. They're Black students, Latino students. And then in my particular class, there were a couple of us that were from the dominant culture, but had faced these issues and challenges. And what I loved about that program and what it did for me is I didn't ever think about going to college. I mean, I was like, I'll get a job at 7-Eleven. It'll all be good. You know what I mean? I was pretty crazy back in the day, classified at risk, and went through a lot of challenges. Because of this program, I got an education. And all of the people that I went with ended up having, most of them, having successful careers myself included, and we never would have had a seat at the table. So now all of a sudden, 
the seats at the table are slowly very in a very small margin starting to be filled a little bit by people who would never have been there in the first place. It's not enough. You know, HEOP is not nearly enough to create structural change, but it really inspired me to take on a career in higher education. So I've been doing that for like 20 years and I believe in, yeah, I believe in education as I know I look really young for my age. You do, you do. Whatever you're doing, you keep it up. (laughs) Okay. A little little bit of Botox, just kidding. Um, (laughs) Hey, no judgment here. Your body, your choice, right? That's right. That's right. Um, You know, but, but I think for me, education became this possibility to change opportunity, to create opportunity, to change some social structures. What I'm really realizing now is that's a bit naive. And some of these theories that you and I are going to talk about, like neoliberalism and social reproduction, for example, I'm not an expert by any means. I just started a doctoral program. I'm just starting to learn this, but like you, super duper nerd, can't help yeah. myself. Absolutely. And like, so I'm like eating it up and reveling in what I'm learning. Right. Yeah. You're putting your intro, your COVID induced introversion to good work, right? Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I also have to throw in there that I would definitely trust a higher education worker who has uh, half sleeves. So I think you've got something going for you. Oh, Thank I love you. your shirt. It's so cute. Thanks. This is tough, but so are you. I love it. I'm so here for this conversation tonight. Every time we interact, it is a positive, engaging, intellectually stimulating encounter, whether it's on the streets of Buffalo at Pride or over Zoom or in Facebook chats. I just had the greatest time getting to know you in these ways, and I look forward to whatever happens. I can't wait to dive in. So you mentioned that you are studying these ideas and learning about them you know, as someone who's working in higher education and also participating in the higher education system, right? So a double entendre there. We kind of started off, my title is kind of, it's not a misnomer, but it's a little broader than most people think about it. I had a couple people say, you know, um, neoliberalism and patriotism, like what do these have, what do these things have to do? So let's try to start from the basics and give us, you know, you're the expert in the room here. And if anybody is in this comment thread and jumps on Google and tries to fight you, I don't anticipate it. But you're the expert in the room. So why don't you start us off with the foundation of kind of what neoliberalism is in as much of a nutshell. It could be like a big nut or a little nut, but in in as much of a nutshell as you can come up with. Sure. And honestly, you know, any arguments or disagreement, I feel like welcome it. That stuff doesn't scare me. And I don't claim to be some sort of like blessed genius that has all the answers. (laughs) So we're good there. I think if I were to just put it in a little nutshell, One of the articles we read for class was by this guy named C. Wright Mills. And what he said is there's no longer an economy on one hand and political order with a military on the other hand. Instead, there's a political economy. And the two have become so interdependent, they can never be separated. So when I think about like, when I think about things like the idea, for example, make America great again. How do you, I know, I'm just diving right in there. So how do you you, go there, Glenn Coco? Whatever, you know, how could you ever go back to an era where there was a separation between the political agenda and the economy where small business thrived in communities? You can't. It's too big and huge and powerful now to ever change what it is. So 
It's this political economy. And I think one of the greatest examples of that is what happened in 2008 when the market crashed and the economic structure was collapsing. I mean, people were losing everything. And the government, the political power base had to bail the vehicle manufacturers out Mm -hmm. as a way to stabilize the economy. So you see the interdependence of the two. They can't be separate anymore. The problem with that is that I think you have to ask yourself, well, then who's in control, right? Like, so you think about the powerful wealth, cultural capital, political capital, people that have Mm -hmm. those things can achieve their will, whatever their will is, even Mm -hmm. against resistance from people. So families, schools, churches, and communities, the articles say things like they just begin to adapt to whatever modern life is presenting to them while governments, corporations, and armies shape that life. Right. And this isn't like a anarchist perspective. I'm not saying that. I think there's a way to work in the, if you're aware of the neoliberal economy of this political economic interdependence, you can find ways to work within it. Right. Right. But you have to be aware first. You have to be aware first. You have to be in the conversation to have the conversation. Right. Right. Absolutely. This idea, I'm not going to lie to you. I am as much of a nerd as you are, I would like to think. And eventually I'll I'll have some letters after my name to prove that other than BS, which I find to be an ironic (laughs) higher education title. Uh, I digress. (laughs) So I, I was thinking about this idea because in, and correct me if I'm using words incorrectly or if I'm missing the point, but from what I've been reading, there's this idea with neoliberalism of human capital. Like you are capital and you are driven to succeed to increase your level of capital, right? Yes, exactly. So the driving force behind it is that what the theorists say is that Mm -hmm. it's an illusion. That is an illusion. What the neoliberal economy would have you believe is, is that if you just work hard enough, If you just strive, if you get the education, if you build your assets, if you do everything right, you can achieve success. It's called the American dream. But that is inherently flawed. It's not true. And actually, the research powerfully suggests that that is absolutely not true. Social reproduction is this idea that class perpetuates class and all the statistics play it out. You can't argue that. Yeah. Tell me a little more about that, this social reproduction idea, because I know that that was really, really integral to what you were thinking about for tonight. Yeah. So one of the books that we're reading for class right now is called Ain't No Making It. And basically, I haven't gotten all the way through the book yet, and I'm working through it, but we've had lots of class discussions on it, and I'm fascinated by it. I have critiques of it, too, that I, I think it could take some other perspectives, but the idea behind that just means you're thinking critically. Yes. So yeah. the idea is that the researcher, this is really an interesting long-term study. He went to this set of projects in some unknown city and he followed two groups of people. The brothers were the boys in high school that lived in the projects that were black. The hallway hangers were these um, mostly Caucasian Irish Italian boys in high school that, you know, really just hung out. And 
the brothers, they were pretty straight laced. They went to school, they worked hard, they tried to achieve. They didn't do drugs, they didn't drink. These are actual real people they followed, right? And then the hallway hangers were doing drugs, drinking all the time, hanging out in the hallway, like committing crimes, stuff like that. But they would reach a certain age and they would try to change their behavior because they knew if they continued it, they would go to prison, right? And I haven't gotten through the book, but my classmates and I discussed this a bit and the book follows them. And then there are updates to the book that come over time. So they're going into midlife at this point and, and the researcher is still following them. So what social reproduction says is that if you're from a marginalized population, even if you do everything right and strive hard, you'll still most frequently end up in the same class you started in. And if you are not from the marginalized population, but you face these other, other social deterrents, no matter what you do, generally, you land in the same class you started in. Yes. Okay. So if I can loop this deep theoretical conversation, political conversation back to Parks and Rec, because why not? It's like the episode in Parks and Rec where Leslie Nope says, you know, I can do nothing wrong. It's like I'm a straight white American senator. <laughs> it's that same idea, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like an American caste system. It is exactly that. And the thing is, we take examples, right? Like we look at success stories. Okay, Oprah Winfrey or, you know what I mean? Like, look at Pam. Okay, Pam grew up in poverty. And I talk about my life story as part of my, I do a lot of consulting and I do like speaking around the country. And a lot of times I'll do motivational talks and I openly share my story. So it's nothing new. If I share it here, it's what I do. But I grew up at risk. I grew up in poverty. By the time I was in eighth grade, I was formally categorized at risk. By 13 years old, I was completely on drugs. I really had no ambition. I went through a homeless phase where I was sleeping on a park bench. You know what I mean? Like, I shouldn't be where I'm at. There's right, no reason really. for it. Struggled with addiction and all sorts of issues, dysfunction. My father was in prison in his early life, like his late teens, early adulthood. Okay. And there's a mentality that sinks into your brain when you've been raised that way. That's really interesting. Like I still struggle with that at times. Mm -hmm. So all of these issues, I have post-traumatic stress as a result of some, you know, dysfunction and violence that I went through. So all these issues, but I made it. So right. that's right. evidence that the American dream is real. And listen, man, if you don't do all these things and you work hard, then it's your own fault which is an absolute fallacy because people like me are like 1% of the population. Absolutely. Yeah, the statistics are not in the favor of the American dream actually existing. It's more like the American scheme. And to pair that with my experience, right? I come from a two-parent home. My parents were not divorced until later in life. Being an adult child of divorce is an entirely separate podcast. But my yeah. you know, two-parent home, my dad was able to be the breadwinner. I was, for the early part of my life, I was cisgendered, heterosexual, white, and I was able to get into college. So I did what I was supposed to. And then I got out of college and boom, the economy fell through. I yeah. had no money. My parents were declaring bankruptcy. And so- I went towards those steps of the American dream. And despite not being classified at risk, 
I've never made a full student loan payment because I've never made enough money to, you know? And so it really pushes back against the edges of that American dream idea. And I think that that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you tonight, because the way that we got engaged in discussion was this hyperbolic Americanism that we've been seeing in this last election cycle, you know? Mm And it happened to coincide with the pandemic. I do think that from what I've read, uh, neoliberalism had some really interesting interplays with the inequities we see in the pandemic. But one Mm -hmm. thing we've seen in this election cycle is the favorite thing that I've heard that I had yelled at me while I was at protest was get a job. So there's this there's this idea that the reason that I'm protesting the system is because I'm not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. And that's insanity. It's just reality. I'll tell you what, you and Al are two of the most hardworking people I've ever known. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty much what we do all the time. So look yeah. cute and work a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I think when it comes to class, middle class perpetuates middle class. So, I mean, we're going to see like cyclical disruptions of our economy all the time. Right. And, and it comes in all sorts of ways. It comes as a pandemic. It comes as, as a market crash, as a housing crash, as, you know, a war, whatever it might be. There's always going to be these disruptions related to neoliberal economy. If you are low to middle class, how do you weather that storm? If right. you have wealth, wealth perpetuates wealth, you'll be able to survive and rebuild later on. Right. You know, but there are so many things that inhibit us, whether it's race or I think one of the things that's often villainized is addictions. It's 100 percent generational. It's chemical. It's it's a medical issue. It's a medical issue. If your family has struggled with it, likely you're going to struggle with it. That's going to inhibit any social mobility. I think the prison system. And then the other thing that drives me totally insane is mental health issues and disabilities. You know what I mean? Like this is keeping people in constant poverty. The other thing I'll say is people who are in the upper middle to higher class often feel, I shouldn't say it so generally, but I don't have evidence to back it up. But it seems as though in this country, people in those places often feel like they earned it or they deserve it. Without acknowledging all of the things that were invested into their lives, even cultural capital. Right. Yeah. Even cultural. Even cultural cap. So if you speak the dominant language and you've been raised in a really nice suburban educational system, you are able to present yourself in a way that automatically provides you with opportunity. That's a form of privilege, too. Absolutely. 100%. It's so interesting to me because from what I've been reading, I think I mentioned at the beginning, but I caught Pam on a comment thread and I thought this was wildly interesting. And I said, hey, will you come do conversations with me? And then I was like, ah, crap, I got to like learn what I'm talking about here. But from what I've seen, neoliberalism started off as an economic idea, an economic ideology about a way to run a country. In particular, we're talking about America because that's the the shit bag that we're in right now. (laughs) But The thing that interests me is, well, first of all, markets are not natural. They're not a natural thing. We create them. And then we act like we're subservient to them. So this man-made structure of a market 
if we create it, it has to say something about our fundamental nature and our moral compass. Mm. And when you create a market that values the individual success over the success of the whole, the, the Native Americans had a word for that. The word for that was illness. It was disease, right? There's wow. a, Yeah, there's a Native American story. And I saw it when I was watching a documentary by Tom Shadiak, who was the guy who produced Ace Ventura. And then he had this really big cathartic head injury and started doing kind of like awareness work. But the story goes, so every day, the people from this Native American village, they would go out, the hunters would go out and they would catch the animals and they would bring them back. And then, you know, the women would prepare them and the children helps at the table or whatever. And, you know, the elderly would watch the children and then everybody would be fed. But then one day this hunter said, I'm the best hunter. So I'm going to keep just a little bit back in my dwelling. And so he took just a little bit more than his share of the hunt. And then he took just a little bit more of his share of the hunt. And then suddenly that bottom tier of the triangle, the weaker folks, the folks that couldn't hunt, they started to become metaphorically crushed under the weight of that selfishness. And so what I feel like we see in America is a hyperbolic pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, American dream. I did it. So, so can you, you know what I mean? And I just don't think that's actual reality. It's not, not at all. That's really well said. I, I love that story. And I, you know, you think of it on a very small community basis, like a small group of people living together and it makes perfect sense. And everybody's like, yeah, that's, I agree. Like, that's not right. When you start applying it to whole entire societies and cultures, an entire country, it's people have a hard time wrapping their head around it and they call it communism Mm -hmm. or like socialism, but that's not what anyone is saying. You know what I mean? Not at all. So I think at some point, how do you impact some level of social change within that? I mean, that's the ultimate challenge, right? Right, right are communal, no matter what we want to do or say. And I think the fallibility of being being human, I think the crux of the human condition that leads us to repeat the same errors generation after generation, the fallibility of humans is that we forget that we're communal. And we're like, bro, I got this. You know what I mean? And then we're like, bro, you don't got this. So the systemic othering begins. It's so easy to see that this economic idea, this is the only time that trickle-down economics has been a thing. <laughs> yeah. The, the individualism is trickling down. You know what else is interesting is that it also ties into the idea of Protestant work ethic and self-flagellation. Because when I grew up in the evangelical household, it was very much a, you know, you get to be a part of the community if you work for it. But bro, what about the person who can't work for it? There's always going to be that. How do we, and someone just said this in the comments, what do we do about that? Do we strike back at the system? Do we disengage? Do we build a new system? I mean, what do you think we do? How do we do that? Or is that to come in the thesis, right? That's the... Oh, no, I have ideas. I'm ready. Let's talk about them. (laughs) I mean, I have no clue where this is going to lead me over the next couple of years. And I might look back on this and say, oh my gosh, Pam, you were so (laughs) short-sighted. But here's like a basic thought, okay? So if you take the HEOP program I mentioned, that higher education opportunity program, and you see how the higher education system was exclusive. So in order to get in, you had to meet certain criteria. You had to make certain test scores. It had nothing to do with your ability to succeed. In fact, most studies of 
employees at organizations show that it's not your technical capacity and your ability to score high on an achievement test that determines whether you're going to be successful. It's your emotional intelligence, right? Right. Like there's a really good YouTube video of Michelle Obama doing a great commencement speech. I know she's the queen and (laughs) and she talks exactly about this. You should look it up. Would you mind dropping that in the comments after the video is over? Yes, absolutely. It's so good. I just used it in a webinar I did and people loved it. But anyways, so these educational structures reproduced class, right? So there's a perfect example of how higher education was a mechanism for social reproduction. If you spoke the dominant language, if you succeeded in schools that would feed you into higher education, that you were prepared for that same sort of language and learning ability, people that didn't have that didn't have access, right? And then someone says, all right, we have to do something about this. We're missing a population of people. There are people that would never get in here, but they might have the capacity to change the world. They could actually do something really impeccable. And again, studies show that more diverse leadership teams at businesses and institutions experience greater success. So if this also diversifies business, that's even better. So they create HEOP. And now you have this infusion of hundreds of people into the job market that would never normally be there. So how do we do that again on a more broad scale? Yeah. How do we blow that out? Right. How do we blow it out? So right now, the thing I'm like, dude, I am so freaking out about. I'm ready. Hit us. So there's this theory that was developed by a guy named Freeman. I would say like 90s, like mid 90s ish is when it kind of like publications came out about it. Anyway, it's you probably have heard about it. It's called the stakeholder theory, but it was a business theory. Now, I learned about it when I got my MBA. So when I was starting to get into leadership and higher education, I got so sick and tired of this one view everybody had. And I was like, I'm going to get an MBA so I can bring best business practice to my nonprofit. They deserve that. So in my MBA, I learned about stakeholder theory. My first big paper for my doctorate is a lit review. And I decided to do the lit review on applying this business theory called stakeholder theory to higher education mind blown. Like I'm so freaking, there's a big gap in the literature. So I'm going to be writing about this, but I will pre-order that shit. Yes. I'm so pumped, but ultimately this is what it says, right? It says that originally organizations, businesses, corporations, whatever, they were profit driven and any analysis of relationships that they had with different groups was all based on increasing the stockholder earnings, right? Stakeholder theory came along and said there are inherent values present in business that have to be considered. And if you view profits as the result of and not the driver of value creation, you will probably make more money. Okay, I'm getting somewhere with this. I'm ready. I'm tracking. All right. On the business side of the house, what has happened in the country today is the emergence of something very new. It's brand new right now, but it's called a B corporation. Okay. And a B corporation is a company. It's a corporation that signs a declaration of interdependence 
and it sets up all of its business practices, financial, human, monetary, whether it's, you know, like operational efficiencies, everything is centered around social good, sourcing of product, everything. Okay. And they have to certify all of it. And then all the B corporations interact with each other. Right. So you have companies that are doing socially just things. And they're hiring for equity and diversity and they're figuring Mm -hmm. out ways to make a better world while they make money. Profit is never the primary motive, right? So that's on the business side. I know. So on on the educational side, what I'm doing is starting to research how institutions of higher education can take that theory and apply it to their work so that they start to look at all these populations. I won't go too long on this, but I'll say one last thing. You go as long as you need. Okay. I paid for Zoom Pro. We're not getting cut off. (laughs) Okay. I feel like I'm talking too much. No, Um, not at all. You are here to talk. They want to hear your voice, not mine. Okay. So basically what it says is a stakeholder is anyone who can affect or is affected by the firm or the educational institution. So you have to like map that out, right? And once you figure out everybody who can affect or is affected by the institution, you have this broad range of populations. Now, traditionally in stakeholder management, they would rank those and they would say which ones are most urgent to deal with, which ones have the most power, which ones have the most influence, and they would focus all of their effort there. Stakeholder theory, which is very much a feminist theory, says you have to elevate and prioritize communities that have no power. And you have to figure out how to engage them in your system as an equal stakeholder, Mm -hmm. but not in the way you think they should be engaged. You have to engage them based on their social perception of themselves. So there's... I know it gives me goosebumps. So there's multiple different studies where colleges did this. Mm -hmm. And one of them was this university in Ecuador in the Amazon. Okay. And they were surrounded by 11 different indigenous nations. And they were like, we want to bring them in. We want to not only increase our enrollments by enrolling them, but we want to make them part of the fabric of the institution so that when we do research, we can do research that's beneficial to them, that brings them resources. Right, right. So they did it and it was phenomenally successful. Mm. And it had this really powerful impact, both politically, culturally, and economically on the institution and the populations. And the indigenous nations ran the advisory council themselves. So they had authority. So I think any institution that has the ability to influence social mobility of populations, right. The administrators have to be taking this work on. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting to me because I swim in the waters of the religious world. Actually, most people in my life at this point in my life don't know that because I experienced a huge disenfranchisement from the religious world, right? But whenever I'm hearing what you're saying, there's an innately spiritual piece to it. And it ties back to the idea of innate worth and innate human value. And so somehow in our society, our politics and our economics got truncated from the understanding that they were to serve us, not us to serve them. 
And so, like you said, the end game became the profits and not the social mobility and not the equity and not the building up, but rather the bottom line. And that is a massive fracture inside our national and global cognitive base that is dissonant because we're putting our money where our mouth isn't. We're putting our, our money in our pockets instead of into our people. And that to me is a spiritual concept. I have this crackpot idea that everything is spiritual. And by spiritual, I don't, I don't mean religious. I mean, it. there is a thing that we can taste and that we can touch and that we can see, and that's our tangible world. But there's something other. There's something out there in the ether that's calling us forward to be and do better. And we have to apply that. Like you, in every area. We can't just get stuck in this idea of I'm me, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Let me give you what I think you need to succeed. Yeah. We have to do it the other way around. And we have to order our economy and our institutions and our banking practices and our news services and our healthcare systems around the people instead of the bottom line. Yeah, I totally agree. And the more this neoliberal economy takes hold, the more even traditionally socially justice-oriented organizations like education and healthcare are forced, really forced, to operate more like businesses because of all of the pressure placed upon them by the neoliberal economy. Right? Rising tuition costs. Right. You right. know what I mean? Um, right. r- rising cost of, of insulin, although good old Donnie said that he could make it as cheap as water. <laughs> Those systems, they are. I mean, the Hippocratic Oath is about people. It's not about billing hours. Right. But right. when you're a healthcare system in a neoliberalistic society. Your hands are tied. Your hands are tied. Yeah. So I think the solution in some ways Hit us with. is for leadership in these realms to start to strongly engage these ideas of equity amongst stakeholder populations. And if they can do that, there could be a rising tide for all. I don't know. I mean, this could be super naive on my part. As I, as I sort right. through it and continue to work on this concept, I think I'll learn a lot. But, but I do know, I mean, and I would argue to the death that The idea that a person should just be able to work hard and overcome is, like you said, an American scheme in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a logical fallacy. It is. And anyone who isn't ready to have that part of the conversation, if we can't start up on that viewpoint, I don't have much left to say. will not malign you, but I can't work with you. Yeah. Because we're starting off on two different tracks, you know. Exactly. As to the um, spiritual piece of it, can I share a little bit about my spiritual philosophy? You can share any damn thing you want. Okay. I have this idea, and I'd love to hear your reaction to it. And, you know, I think all of this concern for our culture and our society and people and populations and social reproduction and all of it comes from this place for me. When I was growing up, we didn't have any religion in the household whatsoever. We just had faith. Like, I remember hearing the church bells chime down the street at the Catholic church and seeing, like, Uh nuns walk around. And I thought it was a pretty sound. thought the bells were a pretty sound. 
when my mom would tuck me in at night, she'd often say the Lord's prayer, but it Uh was like, she would say it and she would like explain each line. And it just was very comforting. Mm -hmm. And then I got older. And after I had my kiddo, I really was interested in learning about like, what's this God thing all about? Right. And immediately started to get pressure from some fundamentals in my life. Yep. fundamentalists and um fundamentalists. you know i'm such a <laughs> like i'm so nerdy that my reaction to that was well i'll read the bible 12 times front <laughs> to back so that no one can ever tell me what to think about it so You're i the did original troll i literally did so i read the, <laughs> the whole thing from genesis to revelation over and over uh-huh. and like i bought different versions of it like king james the um, NIV, the contemporary, whatever. Like I had them all laid out and I'm like comparing words. I had the one that has like the historical context. Yeah. In the oh, I love that. Okay. You've already, I just have to say on an aside from what I know of the religious world, you've already done more studying than most evangelical pastors. So okay. er, er, anyways, you go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Mute myself. So I did all that. And I have philosophies about that. I think the Bible has amazing stories and a lot of historical context in it. It was written by people. What I find at the core of it is, to me, the story of Jesus is really about this core concept of love. And it's really this idea of love yourself and love your neighbor and care for one another. And there is no judgment. Yeah, and structure your world Structure your world around it, which is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about these theories and these ideas. How do I structure my world around this? Yes. And knowing I'm pretty powerless over the neoliberal economy. I, Pam, I'm never going to change it. Like there's no, there's nothing I can do to change the train track this thing is on. Yeah. But I can impact change in myself and in others by doing the right thing. So for me, it starts out with a simple idea that when I was born, the day I came into this earth, I believe I was exactly who I was intended to be, 100%. Everything Mm -hmm. was inside of me for me to realize my total potential. And if you're a person of faith and you believe in God, then you might say it like everything was in there for me to be who God intended me to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I was born and the doctors handed me to human beings. Right. And all of a sudden, every message that I received from that day forward took me away from who I was intended to be. And so my life journey and my purpose, before I can really affect a whole lot of social change outside of myself, is to fully and completely rediscover who I was intended to be on day one. And if I find that, I am fucking set free. Yes. Yo. Right? Yeah. Dude, there's a verse in the Bible that uh, evangelical purity culture has just bastardized. And I am on a reclamation mission. (laughs) But there's a verse in Proverbs that says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Oh, Right. Yo, just done. So many people are like, guard your heart. Don't do it. Don't have sex. That's what I was told when I was growing up. Complete fallacy. We were born as we were intended to be. I, right. I, I 
I was born as a transgender person. Like, I don't think that that body was a fallacy for me personally, my own spirituality and my own understanding of gender doesn't, doesn't make me feel like that was a mistake, but I was born as I was supposed to be. And then the way you put it was so poetic. And then I was handed human beings. Yes. I believe that the purpose of spirituality and then the way that we structure our society outwards in concentric circles is to bring us back to wholeness. I mean, if you look at the Bible, the Trinity is community. Mm. You can say whatever you want about Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I've heard so many ways of understanding it. But to me, when you look at it, the Trinity is community. It is wholeness and it is unity and is it integration and intersectionalism. And so anything that pulls us away from wholeness and unity and integration and intersectionalism is, in fact, what is causing the world to fracture. I wrestle with how I understand sin, but if we want to speak Christian, right, anything that takes us away from wholeness and oneness and shalom, which is the Hebrew concept of complete peace, that is moving away from the heart of spirit and of the universe and of the divine. And it's so funny because to me, it's not a, it's not a conflicting concept. Like we can talk about the economy and spirituality uh, and say fuck all in one sentence. And it is, <laughs> it's this beautiful soup that we're swimming in. Yes. Right? And we just need to be aware. Yep. We need to be aware of, of the, what we say and then of the negative spaces of what we say. Because that's one of the things that has bothered me in particular in this last election cycle. And actually, truthfully, it was the reason that I decided to reinvent Conversations because Conversations has existed for almost a decade, which most people don't know. But one of the things that really kicked my ass was my beautiful wife, Elle. And she saw that, first of all, I was disenfranchised from who I was because of a flawed church system. Mm -hmm. And there are people actively preaching to create division In a flawed church system. And then we have a fucking president who's like, eh, hate other people, proud boys, stand up and stand back. When you have when you have someone in, in a structure of power that is causing division, you are missing the point. Yep. You're missing the point. I don't care how much money you made. He started it with a small loan of a million dollars. I would love to see what I could do with a small <laughs> loan of a million dollars. God damn it. My business functions off what I make the one week I put back into the product in the next. And, and that's successful for me in my income bracket, you know? But yep. when, when we don't orient our society in a way that values the other, we are in fact <clears throat> sinning. We have lost the whole plot. Yeah. The whole plot, as Rob Bell would say. When you can't structure your world to be whole and unified, you're fucking it up. Yeah. Oh man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it requires this really deep, personal, individual, introspective journey where you dig deep and you figure out who you are and what makes you tick and why you behave the way you behave and what caused you to become like that and what the impact is now and how it affects other humans. You know, I think about this a lot because I was affected at a really young age by a lot of violence, like really bad, scary, crazy violence. And then there was issues of addiction around me a lot. And then there was issues of, in certain circles that I was in, issues of perversion and like all that stuff, you know? So all of that comes together and now you have dysfunction. Really rooted itself in who I was as a human being. And I've spent the last... 
literally four years vehemently and aggressively tracking this crap down, like through groups, like I'm in two different groups. I'm in therapy. Yeah, I'm not a therapy is so good. I love my Laura. <laughs> oh man, I know. I feel the same way about my Julie. <laughs> yes, I have a meeting with Laura tomorrow. I can't wait to shoot the shit with her. She tell me how I'm fucking up my own life. <laughs> exactly, it's so perfect. Yeah, you know, but I believe that it takes that digging in process. And the funny part about it is related to all these things is that as you really sort out your own mess, you really have a lot less desire to control anybody else. You sort of shed that. And what I find with people who have some semblance of power and authority, whether it's religious or political or financial authority over other people, is that there's this tendency to like define everything for you who tell you exactly who you are as a human and you're supposed to somehow like just take that and do what you're told. And the fact of the matter is I'll never be content unless I'm free, unless my spirit knows exactly who I am. When my spirit is free, I believe it's free to connect with a higher power. Yes. Whatever you figure that higher power to be, if it's God, if it's the universe, if it's a tree, if it's your dog, if it's your group that you're in, whatever it is, If you are able to connect with yourself, then you're free to connect with that higher source of being. When are you starting your church? I'm going to come, man. I'm going to (laughs) come. But it's so it's so true because it's like having a computer with a corrupted operating system. Right. Oh, what like, a great analogy. Like you. Hey, I came up with that years ago, man. I should have been on this shit. Too bad. The church didn't want me. Um, <laughs> I was the Colin Kaepernick of the church world. I was what the church needed, but nobody wanted. <laughs> Lately, I've been drafted, but I, I digress. But um, it is it's like a computer with no operating system. Like you said, you had infinity. You had an eternity within your tiny little baby body. And then you were handed to humans. Yeah. Isn't that what's happened to religious texts? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not super patriotic, but I think the ideals of America as it's written on paper, well, except for the fucking three fifths thing. But (laughs) if, if if you look at what we say about liberty and justice for all, that phrase has been ringing in my Uh. ear since the George Floyd protest with liberty and justice for all like that is the heart of it because Mm. we need liberty within ourselves. We need justice within our interactions with the others, with God, with the earth. We need to create this environment and it starts with yourself and what so many people fail to do. And I know we're bouncing around, but I swear to God, it all connects. So many people fail to do um, what AA tells you to take a fearless and scathing moral inventory. Yes. Because if you are not connected with your inner world, you cannot connect with the outer world. Now, this is not to say if like some people get really upset over the phrase, if you don't love yourself, how can you love somebody else? And I can see how that would be problematic because we are all flawed beings. Right. Right. We're not we're not going to hit a zenith point in our lives. No. But we can be working to be better and we can be working to integrate instead of instead of disintegrate. And we have to order our personal lives 
We have to order our relational lives. We have to order our communal lives. We have to order our local government lives. We have to order our state lives. We have to order our federal and our global lives around those same principles. And if you can do that, you can change shit up. Yeah, you can. I love it. You really can. And it's not impossible. And I get, I'm a big, I'm an idea guy. I'll probably come up with 30 ideas a day. And I just need takers. Like if I could just sell my ideas to people, I'd be a (laughs) rich dude, right? But I swear I'm not just peddling this. This is the heart of it. If you can take this big idea of neoliberalism, socialism, higher education equity, anti-gerrymandering, anti-racism, if you can take these big theological ideas that you cannot taste, touch, or smell, think critically about them, take a fearless and scathing moral inventory, adjust course appropriately, come closer to the center. Holy crap. That would be so, 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 so different. But isn't it funny how the big things are the little things and the little things are the big things? Yeah, it's so true. It's, yeah, it's all part of it. I mean, I guess if nothing else, people that have an opportunity to hear some of this, if they leave feeling as though one nugget is to dig deep within myself, that's a powerful, powerful nugget. And if someone is already doing that and they're struggling with the process, To know if you just keep moving forward, there is a spiritual awakening that comes, you know, and for folks that are hearing some of these theories and ideas, like like you and I studying them for the first times, if it's motivation to continue to dig deeper from a social and cultural context, then we did our job today, right? Absolutely. You don't need to know everything. You just need to know the next step. You just need to. I know we're circling around, but I feel like this is honestly, truly the nature of life and spirituality is to take this idea, circle around it, look at it from every angle and figure out what it means. But when I came out, I was someone who was evangelical oriented and I had double fisted that Kool-Aid man. I was in it to win it. I was, I'm, some of this stuff's (laughs) embarrassing, but I, I was like, let's speak in tongues. Let's cast out demons. Let's march on the street and hand out tracts and food to people in need. Let's travel around the world and spread the gospel. Like I was there and it didn't hit this plate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And somehow what's happening now, it is. And so you have to see that there is a next step. And for me coming out of that, I lost my next step because I realized myself to be two things, gay and a Christian. And in my circle, those two things don't exist. So saying I'm a gay Christian is a moot point because it doesn't exist. And as I was trying to come closer to myself, my whole world was fracturing from the center of my being. Mm. And to be able to come, I got to write that down. Uh, But to be able to move forward, I felt like I needed the answers. And a lovely, lovely friend of mine, Mark Meehan, who I hope to be getting on a future episode, He told me, he was one of my mentors, and he said, like, you need to learn how to live in the questions because you're never going to have all the answers. So you think you need this one answer, but you Mm. just need the next step. You might not need to know how to dismantle neoliberalism, but if you can know how to take a B corporation mentality and institute it into higher education, that's your next step. Yeah. If you're an addict and you are struggling to overcome addiction, you don't need to know that you will be sober in 10 years. You need to know how to be sober tomorrow. 
Hmm. And if you're, if you are someone who like, like if you are someone who is a black or brown person who has grown up in our area, you don't need to know that you can be president. You need to know that your body is not wrong because the white girl genes don't fit you. You don't have to have all the big picture answers right away, but you got to know this next thing. And so you got to be able to live in the questions and just know enough. You have to. I love that so much. I actually feel like I could cry a little bit. I was crying over here for a second, so it's all good. You cry. Emotions are good. (laughs) That's great stuff, man. It's so true. And I'm so thankful for you for coming on here. I think we could do episode upon episode, and I'm down with that. To be honest, we'll get a reoccurring spot or this be a Pam and Leo show. I don't know. but I love it. I love it. We'll call it two fuck ups trying to make things right. (laughs) That's perfect. I love it. I love it. I'll have my agent call your agent. So Okay, that sounds great. <laughs> but I have to thank you so much for your vulnerability and your willingness to be bold with your story and to be bold with your intellect. Because sometimes in current society, it's not always championed to be a bold female. I know this having been a female, right? I have an intimate understanding of the female experience. But I thank you for being willing to be bold with your story and being unashamed of the fact that you are these things and this is what you're doing. And thank you so much for your vulnerability because like you said, once you find that internal liberation, you can start doing some real work, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think back to my crazy upbringing and like all the nutty stuff I went through. And one thing my dad always used to tell me, (laughs) you know, when we're growing up, we're in a rough neighborhood and he had this mentality from what he had been through in his life. And I'd be like six years old and he'd stand me in the middle of the living room and he'd be like, all right, Pam, he'd put his hands up and I'd have to punch his hands. And he would be like, now, listen, if someone bothers you, if there's a bully or something, you punch him in the mouth while their lips are moving. I mean, I'm like six years old. I'm like, okay, dad, okay, dad, I will. Yeah, yeah I got so, it. While I've overcome the violent teachings and I don't espouse that, what I will say is that it makes me a very unafraid woman. For sure. And I don't put up with a whole lot of shit. No. And it feels real good. Right? And isn't that that a very liberating thing in and of itself too? To go into a situation, know that you've done the work to know your motive, and then just refuse to say no to the bullies or to the haters. Yeah, it's a good feeling. It makes you unpopular at times, right? But you have to understand. And the beauty of it, to bring it back to neoliberalism and to social capital and social reproduction, like, In this moment, you know that you're taking a stand because you're morally obligated to, not because you're in it for ego. Your ego is not a part of it. Right. You know, it's not an us versus them mentality. It's a me versus you tearing down us. And that's empowering. Yeah. It's about doing the right thing. And especially when you get to a point, I know we're at time, but. Oh, no, you've got more time. I was just thanking you because I was so genuinely thankful for your story. (laughs) Thanks. We got at least another half hour. <laughs> oh, God. No, I just think that when you get to a point of leadership, you have an obligation then to make decisions that are for greater good. And sometimes that requires you rolling over systems that traditionally resist that. And fortunately, I work for someone right now who is also very much a strong woman. And our leadership team is comprised of a lot of diversity. We have on our leadership team, we just did a panel for a national conference because we have a couple women, a gay man, a gay woman, a guy from India, and some board leadership that's African-American. So you have this 
really interesting dynamic and everybody's saying, let's row toward equity. And right. it's, it's just amazing to be a part of. Right. I was yeah. talking with a friend of mine who's actually going to be on conversations. I think next week I, I'm planned out to like January and I, I'm all the dates are running together, but we were talking about doing the work of social justice, especially in small town areas, like in Western mm-hmm. New York. And she was talking about how it's easy to build a monolithic social justice movement. It mm. is easy to say, this is what we are about. This is the hill we're dying on. But she was talking about how it's harder to build an intersectional social justice group. But that is the heart of social justice. And that's when the real work gets done. Mm-hmm. It is a cheap shot. It is an easy thrill to say, this is our one thing. We're doing it. We're peeing blood on our chests and we're marching or we're going to yeah. keep, you know what I mean? We're comfortable with this. So we're going to fight for this. But you cannot fight for justice for one unless you fight for justice for all. You have mm-hmm. to. And you can see the efficacy of working in an intersectional body like that. Oh, that's really beautiful. I never thought of it in those words. And I think I'm starting to understand when you talk about intersectional, I don't think I fully really realized what that meant, but I relate it to this weird array of life experiences that I've had that I wish everybody could have. You know what I mean? Like when I got to college, I was in this HEOP group and it was me and one other white person and all African-American and Latino Mm -hmm. people and like one Asian person and they were from inner cities. And I went with them to like Spanish Harlem and East side of Buffalo. And I went to Puerto Rico and Mm -hmm. I went to the projects and I got to live this holy shit moment where I was like, the world is nothing like what I thought it was. Yeah, dude. Oh my God. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, so there was this understanding, right? All of a sudden, holy crap, there's real inequity in the world and real racism that I didn't even understand. Then I identify as bisexual. I had a girlfriend for a period of time and we would go out on dates and we would go to dinner and we would be sitting in the restaurant. This is my first, I'm like naive. I'm like going to dinner with my girlfriend. Right, right. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Never thought a thing of it. Didn't even consider like an issue. And we're sitting and we'd be sitting in a restaurant and it was like the level of hostility of some of the older people that would be there was like palpable and scared me. And I remember going through this moment where I was like, holy crap, there's like this thing, it's called homophobia. And I, I didn't even know it was a thing. I just thought girls were hot and whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? They are. It's true. But yeah, no, it, it's it's a but, whole different thing when you're when you're visible. Right. So went through that. Then my daughter came out and you know the story of my daughter. And oh, I love your daughter. Oh, my gosh. I'm the proudest mom in the world. But she's gay or partners, um, transgender. And I've walked with them through this journey that's been eye opening. And then lastly, and this isn't the limit of it, but. My daughter has severe ADHD and level one autism. So now I'm living the disability, like the differently abled neurodiverse. Yes, that journey as well. So these three experiences, somehow in my mind, it's this idea of intersectionality that you talked about and then addiction issues. Mm -hmm. There are just whole populations of people that we need to start talking about more. Yes. And I'm so tired of the fact that we we don't talk about it or we talk about it in some subtle way because you don't want to offend people or what you say Black Lives Matter and people 
have a heart attack. You know what I mean? Like somehow you're infringing. Yeah, yeah, somehow. Right. But there are real issues around all of this that have to be talked about in our society. So it's so true. I had so many of these. I like to say that I understand intersectionality as a concept based on the fact that I am intersectionality. I am a constant paradigm. I am a constant antithesis. Like my my life has always been multitudes because there are so many things that are within me that are that are multitudes that are diametrically opposed in so many ways. And I feel like when you have an experience or experiences with intersectionality, you can't it's the bell that can't be unrung. Yeah, and that's a good way to put it. You know what's funny? You can't go back like this, but new topic. Um, but if all the minorities in the world started to join together, then who would the minority be? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And it's real yeah. easy to die on one hill. You can be passionate and you can be persevering and you can be bold. But that one hill is just one hill. What happens when you have to summit the next? And so we need to, within ourselves, understand intersectionality. We need to engage with intersectionality and we need to build intersectional movements and systems and markets and economies and higher education systems that support intersectionality because iron sharpens iron, man. We build up each other. We build a society that works for everybody because we include everybody. And Mm -hmm. in this neoliberalistic infused hyperbolic American patriotism that we've seen, we talk about liberty and justice for all, and we talk about um, the Statue of Liberty, and we talk about Ellis Island as a like a thing back there. But now we are just American, and we buy American, and we speak American, and we sing American, and we eat hamburgers, and we've forgotten who the fuck we are. We're having yeah. we're having an identity crisis as a country. Mm-hmm. Newsflash: It's not our land. Like we have completely truncated ourselves from the whole idea that we espoused to embody. Mm. And then our, and our nation is on fire because of it. It's such a weird moment. Isn't it though? It's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre because like I said, I'm not hyper patriotic, but if you play the American ideals out into their fullest extent in a mm-hmm. vacuum of there's so much racism baked into America that I don't want to disenfranchise that because we have a history of racism and we are colonizers. But if you just look at the ideas, right, of liberty and justice for all, of all men being created equal with certain, you know, unalienable rights, those things are true. But we don't major on those. We failed to major on unalienable rights. And instead, we've majored on abortion. <laughs> How? We've majored, yeah. we've majored on guns instead of people. Right. I just don't. It's almost as though maybe the neoliberal economy is only the beginning. And really, it's not just a political economic economy, but maybe it's a political economic religious economy that's driving mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. No. Ah, oh, that's so that's such a good like the connections in my brain are firing right now and they're they're being built as we talk. Like we're verbally processing this here, but I think you're so right because there is this Protestantism that's baked into the American experience. And mm-hmm. I mean, so much so that Joe Biden is diverse as hell when you consider the fact that he's only the second Catholic. Like, how is that what? You know, what? Bro, wild. Yeah. 
the Muslim faith is the faith that is increasing at the greatest rate in the mm-hmm. world, but we're still struggling to elect a Catholic. That's like, so weird. What? Bro, and let's go one level deeper on this. Can we talk about how, so neoliberalism and Ronald Reagan seem to be topics that are in bed together, right? Uh-huh. The only thing that could make a better threesome is Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of things went askew. There's some things that we are feeling the societal dissonance with right now. And the beginning of the fracture happened with good old Ronald. You know, so many things, and I'm not even talking about the economy. We're going to go back just a couple of years before him. And that's when the conservative people realized that they could weaponize the evangelical vote if they talked about abortion. Because before the Reagan administration, no Christian gave two shits about abortion. It was considered to be a Catholic and a Catholic only issue. Yeah. And and then we're like, oh, we can weaponize a vote. We can commodify a vote if we just convince them that this matters. It's so crazy because all of those political and social and religious movements have led us to this place of disease that we have in our society currently and our world's on fire because of it. Yeah, I thought so much about exactly what you're talking about, about weaponizing emotional issues mm-hmm. for votes. And I mean, that was the, the MO of the last election cycle prior to this one. And it's it was the attempt of this one as well to really, really tap into the most base emotional reaction people could have, their biggest fears, their religious beliefs in a lot of ways will motivate they're thinking. So how do we take that and how do we create these narratives, whether true or not, to compel people to be terrified of the future? I think it's hilarious, hilarious that anybody would think either party is going to destroy the world. Oh my God. Like it's yeah. called a system of checks and balances for Pete's sake. Yeah. Look yeah. at, look at where we're at. I mean, we voted the dude out. Okay. Like the system of checks and balances worked. Thank yeah. God. Thank you know, God. Oh my God. I think I, I don't know. I, you know what my daughter said to me when, when it came, started getting close to the election, Rin came up to me and said, really seriously, like walked into the room. Mm-hmm. And this is one thing I love a lot about autism. It's like her personality is the best ever. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's the best. So she walks in the room and like dead stares me in the eye and she goes, Ma, if Trump wins the election, I will simply pass away. <laughs> like turns and walks out. <laughs> so I'm happy that things turn out how they did. But I really think it's it's pure insanity that we go so nuts. I mean, I went crazy because I felt as though and I had like emotional crazy moments because I was so worried about the outcome. But the system proved itself. And I think for people to say, like, this is going to be the end of our country, it's just, it's a bizarre track to go down. Absolutely. It's hyperbolic. And everything about this was hyperbolic. The whole <laughs> way we view society and, and neoliberalism, it seems to me that it's very easy to blow that out in a hyperbolic manner. It's very yeah. easy to blow evangelicalism out into a hyperbolic manner. It's very easy to blow positivity culture and healthy and clean eating out in a hyperbolic manner. And so I think there's an element of intersectionality 
speaking mm-hmm. of intersectionality as balance. There's yeah. an element of the world that requires intersectionality because we require balance to literally not fall off either edge of the plate, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. That's a good way to put it. I've never thought about those two words, thinking of them in a synonymous manner, but yeah, I'm going to add that to my canon, my personal canon that I'm building. Because <laughs> <laughs> awesome. like Augustine or Constantine, man, he just... Oh, he just fucked shit up. 400 BC Council of Nicaea, just a bunch of white men in power sitting around deciding who should be in the Bible. What could go wrong there? (laughs) Sounds horrific. What could could go wrong? Oh, my God. What could go wrong with the fact that literally, if you looked at the pictures of, of vice presidents, Kamala Harris is the only one that's a shade under deathly pale. Like, (laughs) it's the Council of Nicaea all over again. Come on, people. We've got to do better. We've got to do better because we deserve better. And we've got to do better because those that we rub shoulders with, or not anymore in the age of COVID, but those that we live in the same ward as or in the same county as, we've got to do better for us. And we have to place our values and our, our spiritual practice of voting and our spiritual practice of therapy and our spiritual practice of recycling. We've got to place those values and order our lives in such a way that says like, I care about you enough to do this. I love that. And like, no, I was just going to say, I love your mind. (laughs) Like really, really. I mean, it's apparent to me that you've done a lot of that work to get to where you know, Leo. Yeah, You know what I mean? You know who Leo is. You're pretty comfortable in your own skin. You know, you've dealt with a lot of these issues. You talk about the upbringing and the religion and dealing with that and pulling it apart and picking it apart to find the truth of who you are. It's just, it's an incredible process. And then look, it frees you up to have these bigger discussions and think about what the world could look like tomorrow. And I think it's just, I'm pumped. I always love hearing you talk and I, so appreciate being a part of it. Absolutely, man. Nothing galvanizes your personality like everybody telling you you're wrong when your gut <laughs> knows that you're the only one in the room that's right. You know what I mean? And that really makes you start to trust yourself. And then once you start to step out a little, you feel your power. And then you find a wound and then you heal from that. And then you feel more powerful. And then eventually yeah. you're able to move beyond the very bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can claw your way up from merely surviving to succeeding to self-actualization, but you can't do it unless you're ever get past that foundational level of just surviving. Yeah. And the coolest thing about that is you don't have to be rich to self-actualize. Nope. That's that's the cool part. It's that, that piece is there for anybody. I would say people really struggling with basic needs wouldn't have the same opportunity to actualize, but right. but it is more available to people than the other side, which is success in the economy. So that's a worthwhile endeavor to take on. What if, what if America's B Corporation plan, what if liberty and justice for all, what if the Trinity, you know what I mean? What if all of these ideas rest on the principal goal of helping those in economic and social places of disintegration. What if the key to all of this is forming governments, nonprofits, for-profits, churches, 
community centers, family, chosen family groups that allow people that are on that lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy of need to be able to self-actualize. Like, what if that's the heart of it all? Like that took me a minute to get it out, but like, I was just having this idea because so often we talk about these big ideas and they're great, but like, what do I do tomorrow in only in New York? Exactly. You know? Yeah. I do believe wholeheartedly that the beginning of the process is figuring out you. Yeah. It's yeah. like getting to that core place because mm-hmm. I certainly would be nowhere near thinking about the things that I'm thinking about in my life in a productive way where I can do something with it if I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. You needed your operating system. You needed the operating system. So it really starts out with that beginning to address those needs in your life. And then over time, enough of us come together right. in the vicinity of one another. We're gravitating around each other's nucleus. And, right. and all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of people who know thyself yeah, and have a, a strong spiritual connection to something and change takes place. I and think you, that's- And you have a big bang. Then you're living in the first chapter of Genesis where things started anew. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's super cool. Yeah, I mean, the Bible's poetry. There, there was a comment thread a little bit earlier about people who take the Bible literally, but the Hebrew Bible was largely poetry and family trees. But like Genesis is, is a poem about the beginning of things. <laughs> I know. So what, what if we do something wild and combine the ideas of science and religion and we talk about that rotation in the void And then we circle closer together and then bang, creation happens and we're able to give birth to something new. Mm. Mm. I'm damn you think about that all night. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll have to chat sometime about. We definitely will. Big Bible stories. All of them, man. What we think of them, because I have a thousand other thoughts on that kind of stuff. Awesome. We'll we'll schedule that for part two. You know what I'm saying? We'll schedule it for part (laughs) two. But so. I want to thank you again. I know I said it before, but it was generally because I was going to cry. So I needed to pause myself, <laughs> but um, we're, we are about it where I usually end it now. So I just want to say thank you so very much for being brave. I heard that I heard a, an interview recently about how safe space is hard to create because humans are fallible, but we can always create brave space. And so I thank you for being brave with who you are and for being brave with both your heart and your mind and for really, truly generating conversation that can start the change that we need to see in the world. Oh, Leo, thank you so much. Absolutely. I really, that means a lot to me. And I should uh, hold on to that one. Literally (laughs) did all that right back to you. I love it. I love it, friend. This has been Conversations, everybody. Thank you so much for watching. The comment feed is blowing up. Um, Pam and I will go check back on the comment feed and drop some love to you guys. Pam is going to drop the uh, link to that video of Michelle Obama. And I just want to thank everybody that's on this feed right now. I keep looking at my lap like you're all here, but really you're just on my phone. But thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you guys for engaging. Thank you, Pam, for being a part of the conversation. And we'll be back here next week uh, doing the same thing. Uh, if I'm being honest, I don't remember who I'm talking to. <laughs> but I, it's, we're either talking about uh, developing a lifestyle of activism in small town America or we're talking about building intersectional justice. So one of the two topics will be happening next week. So stop by and join us. We're keeping it roughly on Sunday afternoons, whatever works best, depending on the coast of of our speakers. So check it out. We are on Facebook under Conversations Official. We're also under Conversations Official on Instagram and on YouTube. 
and we have a Discord server. If you haven't used Discord, it is the 2020 way of having community right now. Mm -hmm. And you can also be anonymous if you need to ask some hard questions. You can be a username or you can be your authentic self, whatever you need. The only thing you can't be is a troll. So check out Conversations Official on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and we are on Anchor and Spotify and podcast form to give the highest level of accessibility. Thank you guys so much for coming out. We'll see you in the conversations group this week for some impromptu conversations. And also in just a few minutes, if you're interested on the conversations discord channel, there is going to be what I'm going to call the crusty punk Bible study led by Mike Hatch. Feel free to tune in. If you need the link, it's on the conversations page. Thank you so much, everybody for joining Pam. Thank you so much for being the change the world needs to see. We'll see everybody next week. Bye guys. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.